Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So what's this one about, Gary? Well, today, Pete, we're replaying our podcast entitled V Beach Landing, 25th of April, 1915. That's got the year right. Why do you like that one, Gary? Because it's like easy to say, V. Now, Gary, why do you like the drama next? What is it that thrills your soul about it? Well, you've got some real heroes throughout the land. Both sides. Both sides. And, of course, you've got all those uh, machine guns. (laughs) (laughs) Don't. Please just don't. (laughs) Cheers, Pete. I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to... Peter Hart's Military History. Hello, and welcome to the Peter Hart Military History Podcast. Uh, uh, my name's Peter Hart, and I'm here today with uh, my good friend Gary Bain. And, uh, well, uh, that's uh, well, what are we doing here, Barbara? Yeah, hi, Pete. Um, what are we going to be talking about today? Well, I, I, I think it's something that's very close to my heart. Let's talk about uh, the landings at uh, V Beach on the 25th of April in 1915 at, at Gallipoli. I think that, that, that's something that, uh, that, that floats our boat, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Where should we start? Well, should we, should we talk about what they're doing and uh, very quickly set the, the scene? Uh, why, why, are we, why, are we, why are we landing at V Beach, which is on the Hellas Peninsula of Gallipoli? Uh, now, what, 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 what are they doing there? Well, the answer to this is this, this is the start of the Gallipoli campaign. Uh, the idea was that uh, uh, Ch- uh, Churchill takes a lot of the blame for it, but the whole of the British cabinet is actually responsible. Uh, they allow a campaign to begin without any forethought whatsoever, uh, starting with naval operations with the aim of knocking Turkey out of the war, of getting through the Dardanelles Straits, the straits between Europe and uh, Asia, to get through to Istanbul, or Constantinople, as it then was to us, uh, and, uh, and to knock Turkey out of the war. Easy, you might think, Gary. Easy. I mean, what could go wrong? Absolutely. So, was the best chance of actually winning a naval campaign? Uh, yes, probably it was, but they'd already tried that, and on the 18th of March, after a series of uh, sort of, in, you know, bit by bit bombardments, trying to knock out the forts one by one, they made an attempt to force the straits with a, a large fl- Anglo-French fleet, uh, which the Turks had utterly defeated. Uh, nearly a third of the uh, of the Anglo-French fleet was put out of action in those operations, and after that, a land a land campaign was uh, was inevitable, and the person put in charge was 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 Ian Hamilton. Ian Hamilton. So so you know, not a name that uh, 
uh, I'm really familiar with. Was he sort of a, a, a second choice general? What, why Ian Hamilton? Well, not really, but partly his age. He was actually, the, I mean, the Germans considered him the most experienced general there was. He'd had a, a stellar career. He'd, been, he'd nearly won the VC at Majuba Hill back in the 18 what's it? Uh, he nearly won the VC again. Don't ask me what a Majuba Hill no. was about. <laughs> How do you nearly win a VC? All right, he d- performed acts of courage for which he was recommended. Uh, <laughs> I think yes, it, yeah. You, you put my, your finger on it. It is a little bit vague. And then he was sort of did something similar in the Boer War. But for one, he was considered too young, and the other one, he was considered too old. Not sure about the legitimacy of either, of all that. But he had done well in the Boer War. He'd uh, he'd been an observer in the uh, the, the Russo-Japanese War. He was an intelligent man. He dabbled in poetry, um, you know, um, and uh, he, he was considered an intellectual, which, which, which is rare in the British Army in the sense of if they are intellectual, they often uh, are at pains to conceal it uh, just because of social pressures. Um, so that, that's the general in charge. Very experienced, very intelligent, getting on a bit, uh, uh, but, but not... He hadn't been. He was probably a bit old to be chosen to, for the British Expeditionary Force in France. He was sort of, you know, he was behind Smith, Dorian, Haig, and uh, and and of course uh, Sir John French, who actually led uh, in 1914-15. So he develops the plan for uh, the uh, landings. What was the hellish part of his plan? Well, <laughs> the hellish part of the plan is. <laughs> Is, is part of the overall thing. Now, one of the problems with Hamilton is he's intelligent. And everybody always says, oh, what an intelligent plan it was. But what they did was he plans to land just about everywhere. So the, there's two main thrusts. One at Helles, which we'll be dealing with, and the others I'll sketch out quickly. He was going to land at what became known as Anzac, which is halfway up the peninsula for a direct drive across the peninsula. He had a diversion planned at Belair, another diversion planned by the French further around the coast, another landing by the French on the Asiatic side. Uh, he was going to land here, there and everywhere. He, 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 you know, it was, well, I don't know what you think of that kind of, I mean, you know, a plan. Well, I just find it interesting that you're, you're dispersing your forces. The, the Turkish would have a large coastal area to defend and I, I don't understand why you wouldn't consolidate I understand having a faint but not several different landings I think that's the, I think that most modern historians and yes there is there is a touch of hindsight that we're operating in but most modern historians would say yeah you're, you're, you're diffusing your strength uh, particularly as the Turks were operating a sort of German inspired tripwire thing uh, their, their commander Liman von Sanders uh, had had a, the idea that you wouldn't necessarily try and stop them getting ashore. What you would do would embugger them. You would cause the maximum problem on the beaches, uh, but you weren't really trying to stop them. You were just trying to trip them up, slow them down, and give time for your reinforcements to arrive. And those reinforcements would hurl them back into the sea in a you know a, in a, a brutal and bloodthirsty manner. Uh, so in a way, you're playing into their hands if you try and land everywhere because it's easier to stop for the small. Force Forces on the coast to stop them. Uh, so, so that's the overall situation. Should, should we turn to V Beach? Yeah, itself? Why, why choose V Beach? Now, you and I have both been to V Beach. Why there? Because it is a beach, which is quite rare. You know, that some of the other beaches aren't so good. You know, uh, Morto Beach is, Morto Bay Beach is tempting, but you shoot straight to the back of you from Asia. Uh, it's shallow. Um, v Beach is a beach. It's uh, you know it's three hundred yards long, if not more. It, it, 
but it's overlooked by fault. You know, you've got Sedel Bear right on that beach. It's overlooked by a fort. It's got a castle at the back. It's got uh, it had by this time barbed wire. Now, when we talk about barbed wire, we're not talking about Western Front. We're talking about barbed wire fences, almost like a farmer's fence. You know, it's not massed barbed wire. They didn't have much barbed wire. Uh, it's defended by uh, a company of men, V Beach. Uh, so that was one of the land. We'll come back to this. And then just along is the other main landing beach, a, a similar 300-yard beach, W Beach. Uh, they, they, they're just given letter codes. And then they're <laughs> ever more complicated. There's also landings going on at S Beach, to the, to the, uh, just around the corner from V Beach. Uh, it, would, that is inside Morto Bay. Uh, and then they've got another landing at uh, X Beach, <laughs> just further up from W Beach, and then another really mad landing at Y Beach. Y Beach, it's nothing but a bloody cliff, as they said. So this is, even within Hellas, which in itself is a diffuse plan, they're, they're spreading out even at Hellas. And each of these landings is not close enough to the other to support each other. So they're all separate landings, you know, in a sense. And they all stand or fail on their own. They can't really support each other. And while all this is going on, you mentioned the French. And, you know, some people don't actually realise that the French were there. Where were they when we were making these multiple landings? Well, the French, it, 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 I'm glad you brought, remind me, they're the landing on the Asiatic side. The British considered it impossible for the, for, for the time of the landings, for the, uh, for the, 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 the batteries at Kumkali and behind Kumkali, the Turkish batteries on the Asiatic coast, to be firing into their back on V Beach and the rest, you know, as they advanced up the peninsula. So <laughs> they insisted that the French land there. This is probably the most dangerous of all the landings at Kumkali in many ways, because the Turks were much closer there that they also had a very small number to face on the beach but they had large regimental and divisional reserves within close marching distance so they were there to support us but it was only for a short time because the plan is very very simple day one we'd land uh, that might cause casualties, but we'd land. The Turks would then give way because they're foreign chappies and couldn't stand up to cold British steel. Uh, they would then re- we would advance on on the first day. We'd take uh, Achibaba, the hill that dominates Hellas. The second day uh, we would uh, uh, take Kilid Bahir, which is the real dominating range of hills that overlook the uh, the narrows of the strait and on the third day the fleet would go through and as uh, as people have said a fourth day it's you know uh, it rains beer because that's about as likely as any of that plan succeeding now that description <coughs> seems to suggest that they that's a had... gravelly tone there right? yeah <laughs> sorry i'll clear my throat but they, it seems to suggest they knew what they were doing that they had some sort of idea of the land and the topography and yet there's a suggestion that you know the maps weren't very good. They, they didn't know what they were approaching. Is that true? Not really. I mean, they had the maps that they had. Um, they, I mean, they they had the maps that were made by the French and the British before the French. You know, and and topography doesn't change. I mean, uh, were the maps accurate? They were accurate-ish. But the point about this is, you can only have the maps that there are. And the, the Turks, you know, it's not, you can't exactly say to the Turks, oh, we're planning to land here uh, in April. Do you mind if we just send a few scouts ashore to just, you know, map the whole terrain? So you, you have what you have. Um, the map's fundamental. There's a great quote from a naval officer who says, you know, uh, they keep saying the maps are, are no good. But uh, I've looked at the maps and I can see the terrains laid out clearly before me. He says, actually, most 
most, most army officers can't read maps. That's the root of the problem. Now, I would hesitate to say that, but accidentally, I've just said it, I think. Well, I wouldn't, and nothing's changed. <laughs> Gasp! <laughs> so, they're landing on B Beach. That's one of the main landings. The, the, the two main landings at Helles are V Beach and W Beach, and we're going to concentrate on, on V Beach. So what obstacles do they face? You mentioned the barbed wire, but actually the, the logistics of getting a landing force onto that beach. Well, the, 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 let's look at the problem. Basically, and, 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 and people have pointed out that it's a, a natural amphitheatre. I also point out that most beaches are natural amphitheatres or there wouldn't be beaches. But, you know, they, they, they are surrounded by, you know, it's like a, a theatre almost. The, 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 the beach is the stage and that's what the British are, to, are going to land on. To their right, they have uh, the, the Fort of Said El Bar, which is an old uh, 15th, 16th century castle. Uh, what's left of it. Uh, there's a village just above that. At the back of the beach is a fort, a castle, uh, which no longer exists, strangely, uh, and uh, but, but at all. You can't see any trace of it, but it's there in some of the pictures. And then on the left, you've got fort number one uh, at the top of basically a cliff, uh, and then you've got a line of trenches all the way round. But before we start thinking, oh, this sounds impregnable, there is only one company there. Only one company of the 3rd 26th Regiment. And actually, there's only one battalion, i.e. a thousand men, Turkish battalion, to defend the whole of Hellas. You know, there's a, there's a platoon also at Espeach, but let's just leave that out of it. That's from another battalion. But fundamentally, one battalion to defend the whole of Hellas against a British division. So 12,000 infantry before you go on to all the supporting arms. So, let you know, it's a serious proposition landing on this beach. Let's not, you know, pretend it isn't. But, um, but there aren't many men defending it. You know, especially when you think of, you know, you've got your command headquarters, you've got, you, you've got to keep a reserve, so the Turks will have a reserve, uh, and, and it's quite a big beach, so you spread out, you know, your, uh, th- what, 250 men, remove the remote. You've got about 200 men firing on the beach, so it's quite interesting. And how did they decide they were going to overcome that sort of obstacle? How, where did the plan develop to get the men to the beach? Well, the first plan is to land uh, the battalion, first Dublin Fusiliers, fine body of men, uh, um, and soon to become fine bodies of men, as the old joke goes. And that, that's literally true in this case. That they were to land from strings of rowing boats. They'd be towed in by a little motorboat, then cast off, cast off, and then they'd be rowed in by Jolly Jack Tars. One of the things is, of course, no soldier can row. Certainly not at that time, and probably not now. Uh, and they would row into shore and, and, and land. Sorry, can I just ask, we've been to the Dardanelles. The current is... Uh should we say, somewhat challenging, rowing what sort of distance in that current? Basically about 100, 200 yards, just the last 100, 200 yards into shore. But people, you know, that's the plan. And they're going to land on the beach and then another a company going to round, round, land around the corner. Well, let's forget them because they just get slaughtered eventually. Uh, but mainly they're going to land on the beach, you know. And this is where it's quite interesting because there's a couple of British officers who who are real, to me, heroes. And one of them is Commander Edward Unwin. Now, he was was commanding just just almost a yacht. Well, it was a yacht. It was a communications yacht, uh, HMS Hussar. He'd retired before the war. He was quite an elderly gentleman. He was 51, gosh. Yeah, very old. Very old, yeah. (laughs) And uh, now Unwin hears about these plans and he says... uh, 
Hang on a minute. They're going to land on this beach, you know. They're going to get shot to bits, you know. They're, they're, you know, uh, what, no, no. And he comes up with the idea of the River Clyde. And his idea is brilliant, in my view. But brilliant idea doesn't mean it's brilliant in practice. And the idea is that you have a, a converted old merchantman, the River Clyde. You convert it to take troops. You cut holes in the side and put gangplanks along the side. And they meet at the front. And then you have barges to come and provide a sort of bridge from the front gangway of this adapted merchantman to the shore. And that's his idea. And then you have two or three thousand men on board the, two and a half thousand it is, uh, aboard the Clyde. And they'll ru- open the, their doors, rush down the gangways, onto the front, onto the the, uh, the barges and ashore. And this allows them to have a mass of troops getting ashore quickly. They can have 10 or 12 machine guns. It's never 11 in any of the accounts. It's always a 10 or 12 uh, machine guns to, to, to provide a mass of machine gun fire on, uh, to, to, to swamp Turkish defences. And you can just have all your stores and everything on board. It's almost like a modern landing, you know, like HMS Fearless in the, in, uh, in the Falklands uh, uh, or in the Intrepid. Uh, it's like a sort of, it's a sort of early version of that. And that was that was Unwin's plan. And as it was his plan, he was given command of it. Uh, oh. I've heard it described as a Trojan horse. Husky. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, well, yes, Trojan horse. I mean... That's that's the thing, isn't it? Because all these officers, uh, public school boys, are, look, that's unfair. A lot of them are, aren't they? And they have these. They've they've all studied the Iliad or whatever it is, you know. And uh, well, yeah. yeah, you had Rupert Brooke and the Romance of Troy and all of that. Yeah, Rupert hadn't quite made it there. He, no, you know, unfortunately, he sadly died from an insect bite, which is very romantic, um, and septicemia, which is less romantic. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they, they have this idea, and uh, it, uh, you make a joke of it. The, the idea of the Trojan horse is a, a bunch of uh, Greeks, uh, you know, leave this large uh, large horse with with a load of Greeks hidden inside it and they leave it on the beach and then sail off and and the the Trojans drag it into Troy and uh, and then have a huge piss up to you know celebrate winning the Trojan War hey we won the Trojan War you know and and then when they're all pissed out of their skulls and unconscious and the rest of it uh, they 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 burst out of the uh, the the the, uh, the the wooden horse of Troy and kill everybody <laughs> Uh, well, the thing is, you know, when, when, there's a, the, when the River Clyde runs ashore, do you think the Turks think, oh, look, a big prezi, let's take it to Constantinople. It, it, what can you, ooh, hooray, we've won. <laughs> or do they, cold-heartedly and with, you know, narrowed eyes, you know, cartoon villains, just aim their rifles at those, at those doors that have been cut in the side? Do they pick a point to aim at? and then just blast them. And that's what hadn't been thought through, because you're creating a natural defile, you know, um, because they, they don't have to aim at individual men, they just aim at one point, the door or the front of the, you know. And that's not the only thing that goes wrong. Yeah, so I think I think some of the, uh, the rowing boats were meant to be towed. I don't think that went particularly smoothly. And I believe that... Uh, Commander Unwin took control of the situation. Well, yeah, the 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 the, the boats, uh, the the, the, uh, the the tows, you know, that were uh, the rowing being the people being rowed ashore. As they get near shore, it's as Unwin predicts, a massive fire bursts out, and those people are slaughtered. Uh, they they really shot to bits. The boats are shot to bits. In particular, when the uh, the sailors, the Jolly Jack Tars, who are rowing, are killed, of course the boats start to go round in circles. 
because, as I said, soldiers can't row boats. So they have a terrible trouble getting ashore. They're shot to bits, and the remnants gather beneath a sandbank, uh, just about three or four foot high. And there's a famous photo, which I'm sure Matt will put on the, on the, on the website. Uh, which, well, you've been there. Yeah, I've seen it. I've actually... The, the bank is still there in some form, and you can crouch down behind it. I'm aware of the photograph. The photograph's from the, the bridge of the River Clyde. Um, and it's over one of the boats and you at first think that there are soldiers in the boat waiting to be landed but to the left they're alive to the right they're dead and then you can see I think it's the Dublin Fusiliers crouched behind this tiny bank in broad daylight I hasten to add and it just demonstrates the 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 lunacy if you like of trying to get men across open water onto a beach which it, you know was a lesson learnt for the second war it was and it i mean what happens is is a farce because unwin has thought ahead and, and got barges ready and there's a barge you know and, and a rowing boat and all right and they have a little steam tug to pull it you know and there's a little steam tug and it, it it's meant to pull the barges to the front of the client fabulous thought of everything so who should we put in the tug i'll tell you what why don't we put one sailor one 15, 16-year-old midshipman and a bunch of Greeks. Now, with the best will of the world, you know, the Greeks aren't in this war. They're neutral. And when they, when everybody opens fire, what do you think they do? Well, they, they batten the hatches down, <laughs> go below deck and refuse to come out. And who can blame them? What happens to the thing? It goes off to the left. You can just see the back of it in the picture. That means that there's no way ashore properly from the gangways to the thing and you know the, the Clyde people think it ran ashore but actually the, it had had kerfuffles coming in it was quite a way out it's 80 to 100 yards offshore you know the, the water's five or six foot deep probably more so how do you get ashore even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. 
For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And so Unwin's observing this. It's his plan. So he must have had some sense of ownership of this and he takes action, I think, with a, an able seaman. What does he do? Well, it's in, I, I've got nothing but admiration. It's his plan. He, he's been put in charge of it. Uh, but he's an officer who, who, who takes responsibility when things go wrong. His plan has failed. He hadn't thought it through. That No one had thought it through. They hadn't got a bridge ashore, a way of getting ashore. So he, with a, uh, an excellently named uh, sailor called William Williams, I, I think it was, uh, who's taken a demotion to go with his... Uh, from the Hazar to join him on this thing, they go. They just jump into the water. They tie a rope from the uh, the barges around them, and they form a human anchor on the rocks. Uh, and all this under you know you know and try and they actually create a bridge to get ashore for uh, for the for the for the men on the on the ship. Uh, it is quite amazing uh, what ha- you know what what's happening here. I mean, it's a real. One man making a difference. The army loved to talk about this. You can make a difference. You can personally make a difference if, if you really try. Uh, and that enabled the Royal Monster Fusiliers to make the first assault from either side of the River Clyde. And I believe that Unwin was dressed in his whites. No, that's later. That's later. That's, that's when he goes back on board uh, and changes to go and rescue people. Yeah, that, that, but yes, he, later on he is. That's right. And it, the famous picture of him is in his white. The famous model of the, the you know, picture of the model. Um, now, the Dublins were meant to come out. It runs ashore, what, 622? I think, no, I can't remember. Uh, it, it runs ashore anywhere at some time or other. Um, uh, it, it, they were in Laulay. Yeah, 622. And uh, they, they go ashore. And uh, there's an account. I'll just read you one account uh, from, uh, from uh, well, there's two shots. One from the boat. Uh, this is from Sergeant Colgan of the Dublin Fusers. He's in the boat. This show the two ways of getting ashore. And this one, there are 32 in my boat and only six escaped alive, including O'Hanlon, who had his hand blown off. One fellow's brains were shot into my mouth as I was shouting to them to jump for it. I dived into the sea. You know, that's what's happening in the boat. It's awful. Well, that quote makes me feel almost sick. It's just uh, horrible. Uh, and then on the boat itself was... Uh, was um, uh, now, what is his name? Guy, Guy Geddes. Of course it's Guy Geddes. And here's a quote from him. And I, I wonder if you... When I read this, whether you notice anything about the tone of it. it this is Guy Geddes, and he's going down the left-hand gangplank after the Clyde. Uh, onto the bridge provided by Unwin. He says this, We got it like anything. Man after man behind me was shot down, but they never it, wavered. Uh, Lieutenant Watts was wounded in five places and landing on the gangplank, cheering the men on with cries of, Follow the captain! I think no finer episode could be found of the men's bravery and discipline than this, of leaving the safety of the River Clyde to go to what was practically certain death. I dashed down their gangway and already found the lighters holding the dead and wounded from the leading platoons. And what do you notice about that? Well, it's all about him. So, so <laughs> following him, the bravery of the, uh, the squad is following their noble officer from the boat. And I think that's it. And it's that, do you know, I don't mean, I, I have the highest regard for Guy Geddes. He's a great officer. But it's interesting that the different ways of saying how great you are is by saying how brave the men who follow you are. Uh, and that's a, t- a thing you get from 15, 1914, 1915 accounts. It, it does 
back off after that. Uh, he was an extremely brave officer. They're, they're shot to bits. Some of them get ashore. They join the rest of the Munster Fusiliers, uh, sorry, the Dublin Fusiliers under the sandbank, uh, and they try and move right up to the castle where Geddes is wounded in the shoulder. Now, one thing, what, 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 who's shooting at them? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to, if I may, introduce a little controversy here. Um, they are receiving enfilade fire from machine guns, aren't they? Well, this is the popular viewpoint. <clears throat> and it's become a, a real controversy. Because by our accounts, there's four, five, six umpteen Turkish machine guns resisting their landings, the W Beach and uh, V Beach landings. However, the Turk, you know, and and and... I don't think that this is tenable, um, despite what I previously thought. Yeah, I think in uh, defeat at Gallipoli, I think you reference the machine guns, Pete, actually. I do, I do. But one of the things about history is you look at the evidence, you see how it takes you. And I did write that because I was convinced by all the British accounts, which referred to machine guns. And so being a young, naive historian of only about 40 at the time, um, I, I put that. Since then, I've been <laughs> taken aside by various Turkish historians uh, uh, under the guidance of, uh, of Ken Ancelik and, uh, and Bill Sellers, two very well-known historians uh, of, uh, who live out... Well, one's Turkish and one's Australian. But they guided me through the Turkish sources. Uh, I don't read Turkish. And the thing is, it's quite clear that there were no machine guns there. They didn't have any in the order of battle. Uh, now, people refer to a variety of reasons they could be there. You know, the, oh, the Turks just didn't write it down. It's as if they were some sort of primitive organisation. They were a, as big a bureaucracy as the British for, for running their empire, you know, uh, that they'd been landed from naval boats. Well, we know when they came ashore from naval boats. They came ashore on the 5th, 6th of May. Uh, it, the thing is, you know, I always say, you know what you have on your side, but it's difficult to know what's shooting at you because you're being shot at. Now, what was shooting at them was up to 200 men firing rifles at them, plus uh, there was some Nordenfelt, uh, Nordenfelt sort of automatic uh, hand-wound machine guns. Now, I think that might explain what the problem is, because they chew boats to bits, these things. They're Nordenfelt, one inch. There's one outside the Tower of London. Uh, not outside, inside, but outside the Royal Fusiliers Museum. Uh, I think they got that from X-Beach. Um, so how do you explain all the accounts? There's there's lots of accounts. There's lots of quotes from, you know, people that were there. It's just you're under a lot of fire, and if you're under fire, I mean, they're under a storm of fire, you know. <laughs> but the point is, the Turkish records are quite clear, and they're also clear about when machine guns arrive and the rest of it. And and it's like an answer. It's clear from the Turkish records. Why would they lie? Uh, it's not that our chaps are lying, because they're not, but they are mistaken, in my belief. But it, we might be wrong. But, you know, there are references to hearing it. Uh, soldiers generally can tell the difference, uh, and there are references to hearing machine gun fire. And they can hear a machine gun fire, because the Vickers is a, just a maxim with the lock upside down. Uh, and they can hear the massed machine gun fire. In fact, I doubt if they could hear anything else but the British massed machine gun fire. And this creates a confusion. Now, people say, will you bet your house that there was no Turkish machine guns there? Well, firstly, the Nordenfeld, in my view, is a type of machine gun. So, you know. And secondly, no, I won't. I've changed my mind once. 
if people bring forward the evidence, I'll change my mind again. But at the moment, guided by uh, people whose judgment I respect, uh, I, I believe there were no machine guns on V Beach. Uh, Although I believe they were just later in the day. Possibly. I don't think so then either. Now, that's another thing I keep changing my mind on whether they brought some up later. I don't think they did. Uh, I, I think the, 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 the machine guns are further back. And, you know, it's, it's just a, it's a, a moot point. Shall we leave it to that? Possibly. Uh, we, I mean, there's a, there's a thread on something called the Great War Forum that's got 8,472 billion posts on this, mostly with two or three people going through the same argument again and again and again. I'd prefer to think that the men were under heavy fire, which I personally, oh, no, I'm a coward, which anybody, any brave soldier would have hated being under, and and, uh, and, and it was awful. They were shot to bits. Okay, so they're affecting the landings. What about the other beaches? Well, they, they go, I mean, W Beach should do quite well, but they try and get across to V Beach, but they can't because the Turks have a fort on the intervening hill. That, that fort is basically where, not a defended position, is where the uh, Hellas Memorial is, on, on that hill there, on the crest of that hill. And as you know, that dominates the ground between the two. They get no further. S Beach, they land, they get ashore. There's only a platoon of Turks there. They've got more, uh, they've got more troops ashore at S Beach than there, than there are Turks in the whole of Hellas. But they've been ordered to stay there, and they make the decision that if they abandon that ridge, which they part of the ridge, then the Turks they thought there was a division there, so they they should they make the decision to to hold the position, wait for the British to come forward. Is are they wrong or right? I don't know. I think they're probably right to obey orders. Um, X Beach, they land. Uh, <laughs> And this is the problem of having a beach that isn't a proper beach. It's really, you know, there's only six or there's 12 Turks there, so they get ashore almost unscathed. But then there's a complete mess up and a small Turkish account, apparently by thousands, but in actual fact by at most a platoon or at most, most a company, you know, flings them back and they don't really achieve anything. Why beach? which is meant to be the jab in the ribs of the, 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 the Turkish defenders. They land, it's, it's a cliff. They get to the top, they, they're probably knackered, they don't dig in properly, and, uh, and they are the first that the Turkish counterattacks hit that night, and they have to evacuate next morning. So V Beach is a failure amidst a collection of partial successes or failures. So it's getting no support from... The other beaches, in fact, they're probably too far away anyway. Um, and we return to the debacle of getting ashore. Now, Unwin and William Williams, I think, struggle for around about an hour. It, it, I think I don't think people know. Uh, yeah, I'd say you're about right. I don't know. And then William Williams is mortally wounded, as they say. He, 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 you know, and Unwin comes back aboard ship. You know, absolutely naked. There's then a farcical period where a bunch of midshipmen take over. A mid- I, I don't know their first names at the moment. Uh, Drury, Morse, and uh, Mallison are the three. Uh, and they're they're basically trying to tie these lighters ashore. And there's a great account from one of them of how they they sort of swim from one to the other. And they say, "Have you got the rope?" No, they've left the rope. <laughs> <laughs> and that's almost like a carry-on film. You know, you just have to. Anyway, but I mean, to carry it while people are dying. So it's you know, and and and. The, 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 the landing is suspended because although they manage to get things together, every time they try to land, the Turks open up on them. They have fire discipline. They're being fired at 
by the 10, 12 machine guns on the Clyde. So they're keeping their heads down unless something's happening. So they only fire when something's happening. And that's what's going on for the next bit. They have another major attempt when, uh, when uh, Brigadier Napier arrives. Uh, Brigadier Napier sort of comes past uh, in the second wave it's meant to be. And he says, well, why aren't these men landing? What's going on? And if it, you know, somebody shouts from the client, well, you'll, you'll be buggered if you try and land here. So, you know, well, I'll have a damn good try. Him and he go around the corner, shot, killed. Bodies never recovered. His brigade major, his chief, his staff officers killed. And it, it, they can't get anywhere. I mean... You know, they're meant to be at the end of the day on Achibaba, then they've captured from the sea to the sandbank, which is about, what, 12 yards at most? You know, that's all they get. Can we talk about some of the personalities? I'd like to introduce the, uh, uh, the way the British officers were behaving. So uh, I think there's a quote about uh, a very famous individual, Doughty Wiley, and uh, I'll describe it as um, Willie Waving. Yes, um, th- th- this is this is the biggest problem. Him and Carrington Smith, who commanded the Hampshire, uh, um, uh, uh, Wiley, uh, Doughty Wiley, no, uh, Charles Doughty Wiley, but known to his friends as Dick for some reason. Now, now, down, down, brothers, and Carrington, and, and they would not take proper cover, and uh, and uh, you know, um, the, the, it's really. It's a British Army thing that you don't, you know, damn foreigners shooting at us, you know, and it's sort of, you know, it's the old Australian idea of you adjust your monocle and carry on, and it's stupid, and it is stupid, um, and they do it time and time again. Unwin is watching. I mean, he's brave, but he only exposes himself, so to speak, when there's danger. As he says about Dou- Doughty Wiley, I could not keep Doughty Wiley from unnecessarily exposing himself over the iron screen, so I gave up at last. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the modern mind has got another version of that, which we won't dwell on. But the point is, that's what they did. They they stood there, tall and erect, and that. No, <laughs> no, no, no need for that expression. Well, thank God we're not on um, uh, video. Um, the um, so they're doing that, and actually, Carrington Smith goes and Herbert Colonel Herbert Carrington Smith he goes up up and um, refuses to take cover, and he's killed. You know. And that leaves, that funny enough, that leaves Doughty Wiley pretty well in command, uh, because the other officer, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Tizard, he's commanding the Munsters, is is not like this. He takes cover, he's sensible, he does his job, but later on he gets into trouble because he because he's not behaving like a bloody idiot. And this is quite—he actually gets sacked next day because he is an idiot. He is uh, sensible, you know. He doesn't expose himself unnecessarily. So the landings have failed. And at this point, you mentioned the white suit. Yes. This is another bit of a man who wants to make the difference. And Edward Unwin, he's gone. He's got changed. Now, what can he get changed into? Well, all he can find is his yachting suit, which is white. And he, he can hear the men wounded are lying about in the water, a lot of them, and and they're drowning, they're dying, and, and he can't stand it. This is his plan, remember, as far as he's concerned. He is a man who takes responsibility. And he gets into the water and with, with a couple of others, volunteers, uh, and he, 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 he takes a boat and takes it to the wounded, pulls them into the boat, and then takes the boat back to the Clyde. 
Uh, other 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 Turks opening fire at him, uh, yes, but not particularly. If you see what I mean. In other words, this isn't a danger to them. They've got fire discipline, so that you know. But he is in incredible danger. It's extremely brave of him. Uh, and I love one particular quote from him, which is uh, is basically that uh, that uh, you know he gets absolutely exhausted and goes back on. And uh, a young a young a young officer says, to him, well, "What are you doing? Go back on." And he said, oh, "I couldn't do any more. After all, I was fifty one, you know." <laughs> <laughs> and, and he just think. But he was uh, what a what a hero Unwin was, and, and all of these guys are real heroes. But that's really the story, you know, of 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 the twenty fifth of April. That's how far we got. That's as much as we do. So, British failure or Turkish success? Oh well, um, I cannot fault the heroism of those guys landing. You know, um, but do they succeed? Well, the answer is no. I mean, they don't succeed in any of their objectives, do they? No. All they do is demonstrate incredible courage. And, 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 and there are, I think, six VCs awarded that day. Uh, and well-merited, in my view. Uh, but do they get any? Do they do anything? Do they achieve anything? No. Now, why is that? Is it the incredible strength of defences, or is it the defences and the Turks? And in my view, at the centre of this story is the 3rd 26th Battalion. Uh, of the Turk, you know, the 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 third battalion of the twenty sixth regiment, of the Turks. What a bunch of heroes! Colonel Mahmoud, I think it is, commanding that 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 they, they, they just do unbelievably well. They, uh, they they may panic at times. There's a you know, there's a letter that's quite amusing. My captain, my captain, the enemy's infantry is taking cover at the back of Saddle Bar. What shall I do? You know, uh, if I had more men, I would. I'd charge them and throw them back into the sea, which is a touch of steel, which you expect from a Turkish... But, you know, uh, my captain, my captain, for God's sake, send reinforcement. Hurry up! What on earth will happen, my <laughs> captain? It's a fantastic quote, you know. But there's no panic in the sense of they carry on doing their duty. They fight to the end. Most of them are killed, you know. Uh, and uh, and it's only next day that the story moves on. Uh, one point I'd like to make about this machine gun business. When night falls... They get the men ashore. Uh, they, 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 they get the men ashore because... Now, how come machine guns can fire on fixed lines? You know that. Yeah. Uh, with you, it's a GPMG, but the, any Vickers, any Maxim can fire on a fixed line. So what's to stop a, a, a machine gun just firing on the beach from, you know, where they can hear things happening, just opening fire? Uh, well... Rifle fire, you can't, because rifle, you have to aim it. So you guess you can have a fixed rifle, but not to stop a, a load of people coming ashore. So that's another interesting point. They get ashore. There's a quote from a midshipman, I remembered his name, George Drury. Uh, and uh, he, he says, you know, they're going, they're just going ashore. They're treading on the wounded. They're, they're treading on the dead. They don't know where they were. And he said, uh, some of the poor devils are in an awful state. And a bit that I think really hits home. I never knew that blood smelt so strong before. And you just go, wow, this is, this is awful. There's this story that the seas were red with blood. I, I don't know whether the seas were red with blood or not. There is a red form of seaweed that from the air may have looked like it. And I've seen it like that. But there were certainly an awful lot of people killed on that boat, that, that beach that day. Uh, don't ask me for figures because I don't think they ever really knew because there were so many casualties over the next day. But it was a scene of slaughter uh, and of sacrifice. Uh, so what they're going to do now? 
So did they capture the fort? Well, not till next day, not till eight o'clock next day. And by then, Doughty Wiley is taking a real role. You know, he's gone ashore and Tizard doesn't go ashore. This is the, this is the point. But Doughty Wiley goes ashore and he leads and he's got a cane. And people like to say that he only had a cane because he'd served the Turks, you know, in, in, in the, you know, uh, in, in the pre-war years. And he didn't want to kill a Turk. I think he knew he couldn't hit a barn door with a Webley. He wasn't mm. going to carry a rifle. And therefore, a, a cane makes... Uh, and this is the battlefield joke of battlefield guides. A cane makes it easier to point at what you want because it extends your arm and makes it obvious. I think that's why I was carrying a cane. Uh, but he, he shows a heroism. But what is great about Doughty Wiley at this point is you can make jokes about him all you like. You can be cruel about him. And, and you know, but what he does is organise. He is a senior staff officer, and he organises. He gets naval support for bombardment on the village, you know, and the fort at the top, the castle at the top. He gets, uh, he gets, he organises the uh, the Dublins, the remnants of the Dublins, and the Munsters and the Hampshires. They're the other battalion on the ship, and he organises it all, and then he leads it. Uh, should he lead it? Well, one of the other officers uh, says that the men were sticky. You know. Mm. And by sticky, what he means is that it's not that they're running away. It's just that they need, they need, really need leadership. They need motivating. Yeah. Otherwise, they're going to not do anything. And, and, and seeing a colonel out front risking his life is, is good for the men, you know, uh, if you like. So they, they, they charge, they take the, uh, they take the, uh, the, the, the fort, the Sedobar fort, and then they charge through, through the village, um, you know, um, he gets his a bullet knocks his cap off. You know, it's that much. He's under fire. He's brave, and uh, and then they sort of advance up the village. This is uh, Krithia. No, no, Sedobar, Sedobar, Sedobar village. Immediately behind it. Sorry, I didn't make that clear. Uh, and and this is where one of my favourite stories comes. Uh, perhaps uh, you know, I know that you like uh, small well, animals, don't you? Yeah, I, I believe uh, there were some local cats. I believe that were particularly friendly. Yeah, I've got, I've got a I can't read. This is uh, Lieutenant George Davidson of the 89th Field Ambulance. He's coming along <laughs> behind the front, and he sees uh, and he sees a, a cat in the middle, and he says, "I was very sorry for a cat that had cuddled close to the face of a dead Turk in the street, one leg embracing the top of his head. I went up to stroke and sympathise with it for the loss of what I took to be its master. When I found that the upper part of the man's head had been blown away, and the cat was enjoying a meal of human brains." And I'm sure he said it in exactly that way. <laughs> zombies. They didn't have zombies then, did they? That's a modern thing, isn't it? But uh, so they go through and they, they get to the top of the hill and they're coming up to what's known as the castle. It's this low-lying fort thing at the top. <clears throat> and there's very few Turks left by this time. I mean, some of the British officers... <clears throat> now, I'm catching your croaky throat there. Some of the British officers make it quite clear that... There's not many people up there by this time. But they, Doughty Wiley leads the men up. He leads the assault and they take it. And they have taken V Beach. And it's done by about uh, 1 o'clock, I think, that day. Yeah, 13.30. Uh, 13.30. So up that top by 2 o'clock. And, uh, and they're there. And then, and then tragedy strikes. Tragedy? Well, Doughty Wiley is killed in his moment of triumph. But, but how is he killed, Gary? How do you think? Well... <laughs> Based on his characteristics, I would think he'd be busy exposing himself. 
And I'm afraid that's the case. Uh, Private William Flynn of the Munsters, first Munsters, said uh, he was stood up alongside of me with his officer, with his orderly, sorry. They were shouting to him, get down, sir, you'll get hit, because there was sniping. He wouldn't, and an explosive bullet hit him just below the eye, blowing all the side of his face out, and his orderly got killed. Now, he's, the thing about this is there's two points about this. One is the poor old orderly. If, you, if your officer's standing up, you have to stand up. And even today I heard a great story about a Northern Ireland officer, Jack Sheldon, who had to stand up when, the, when a general came round. <laughs> I know the general as well, but I'm not going to give his name. And, and you have to, even with... The IRA was shooting at him, but he still had to stand there because the general was stood there. And it hasn't changed. But the thing about it was uh, that there was no need for it. He was warned. And it's this standing there, willy-waving, we call it. And it, 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 it's foolishness itself. It's something that the British Army doesn't eradicate in 15 properly. Uh, it's something the Australian forces suffer from as well. We talked about Monash the other day. Monash didn't do this. But lots of British officers serving the Australians. Lots of Australian officers did do it. Uh, but he was killed and he dies and he's buried there. We've been to his grave, haven't we? It's, you know, it's one of the very few single graves. It is. And, and I'd like to touch on, I, I'm not sure if this is rumour, if this is fact, if there's any evidence. But there is a suggestion that either his wife Lillian or his uh, mistress, um, who I think was Gertrude uh, Bell, visited the grave on the 17th of November 1915. It's an interesting topic. We heard a, an excellent presentation on we this did. at the Gallipoli Association Conference. And my, my answer is it, it was almost certainly his wife, because uh, uh, documentary evidence would prove, would stand against the other one. I don't know. Uh, I might be absolutely honest, I don't actually care either. You know, uh, it's not To me, it's, uh, it's uh, one of those sidelights that sometimes historians obsess about, uh, which is good fun. And, yeah. uh, uh, which is why why you why you raised it, obviously. But I don't know. I think it was his wife, if anybody, uh, uh, who was a very patient woman, I believe. As, as of course, is Mrs. Bain. Yes, absolutely. Um, and just to close, if I may, it's a slight aside. What happened to the River Clyde? Um, well, the River Clyde. Um, it um, it uh, <laughs> well, it stays there. It stays there on the beach. Uh, and, and there it stayed for the rest of the campaign under occasional shell fire from across the straits. Uh, and then it went, they pulled it off and uh, it went off to be a tramp steamer. Um, uh, again, just what it was. And, was and, and there's one great account during a 1936 visit. You know, the, all the old veterans are on, the, on a ship going off and the bloody River Clyde passes them. <laughs> well, not passes, I think it's going the other way. But they see it. Uh, and in about 19, early 1960s, the, it was getting old and they were going to scrap it and they offered it to the British government. You know, for, but they wanted a sum of money, you know, 12 and sixpence or something. So the British government immediately stumped up. Yes, no. The British government said, you can... And that was the end of it. And they scrapped it because the Spanish were true to their word or Portuguese, whoever had it by then. Uh, so that was the end of that. Um, what happens in the rest of the campaign? Do they, do they you know, does next day they capture Hachi Bauer? No, they never get, they never get past anywhere. Uh, v Beach is an utter failure. Uh, it, 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 it is a really, really bad failure. I think, again, what, go back to it. They hadn't thought it through, had they? It was, it was a great idea of Unwin's, and he performed brilliantly. But he hadn't thought it through. No one had thought it through. They created uh, defiles, a, a position where you can just shoot at. You don't have to aim at an individual, just shoot. Uh, by the way, rowing boats are the same, of course. 
you don't aim at but you just aim at the rowing boat and and they've created the same situation at the front of or well down the sides and the front of the thing um there wasn't enough strength it was ridiculous the, the way they landed where should they landed i think probably somewhere between the Camatel, <laughs> you know, in the centre of, uh, just uh, to the south of Anzac, uh, south of Gabatepe, between <clears throat> that beach around about the Camatel, right the way through to Suva. They should have landed the whole bloody force there, possibly with a fainter tube, but, and then gone straight across, uh, taken the Anzac hills, and made a real thrust for Khalid Bahir, which, by the way, was the plan that uh, they'd been thinking of earlier on in 1906, or whenever they last looked at it. You know, um, B Beach heroism, uh, heroism on both sides. But in the end, one battalion of Turks held back. You know, the twelve thousand men of the twenty ninth division who tried to land that day at uh, Ellis. It was their triumph. Well, thank you very much, Pete, and uh, I can't wait until we talk some more. Cheers. Thanks, Gary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?